Most people say, why did the pastor preach so long? Sometimes it's the parents of young children that are departing right now. They go, why wouldn't you preach longer? We had some time there. Um, So this week, excitedly, uh, we get started with a brand new sermon series. Brand new sermon series this week is called A Praying People. We finished our Resolute series last week. If you missed that, missed any of those, you can go online, go on iTunes, you can go and catch up however you like. Um, But for the next five weeks, we're going to be actually talking about prayer. Prayer is something we think we're supposed to do, and and when we're honest, uh, sometimes we struggle to do it all that well or all that consistently. Prayer is quietly one of those things as a pastor that people will uh, feel they need to admit to me that they're not very good at. That it's hard, that it's inconsistent, that I'm praying and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about the Super Bowl or I'm thinking about my grocery list or I just, I get off track and so I feel defeated and I just don't pray anymore. And I hear that all the time. And so what we're going to do for the next five weeks is, is not just say, here's how we pray and then say, try harder. We're actually going to spend some time uh, looking today at sort of the motivations behind it. Uh, what Jesus gave us in his invitation to come approach the Father. And then uh, the weeks that follow, we're going to talk about specific types, uh, so much so that we have multiple voices uh, that are, have passions and expertise in these areas, and, and we're going to talk about what does it mean to have ceaseless prayer. The Bible says pray ceaselessly. And what does that mean? Maybe that means something like a conversation. And how would we have an ongoing conversation with God? So you're going to hear about that. We have uh, unanswered prayer. What do you do when you pray, and you ask, and you plead, and there's silence? What do you do? We're going to talk about uh, shameless prayer. This sort of ask for the stars prayer that we're afraid because maybe we've been unanswered before. And so what if I prayed a really big prayer? What would that look like? Why would I do that? And how would I do it if I wanted to? And then we're going to close by talking about how do we pray together? Because our culture is individualistic and so we tend to pray alone. And yet scripture is really just exploding with examples of what it looks like when a body, when a family, when a community prays together. And so we're going to talk about that as well. So my hope is this is not only uh, sort of inspiring in a personal sense, but it's practical in a larger sense, that this would sort of invade our families and, and this family, and we would be even more so than we were yesterday, that tomorrow we might be a praying people. So we start today with Jesus teaching us how to pray, teaching his, his disciples how to pray. And this is in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 9. The scripture says, uh, Jesus is talking, and he says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus looks at his, his gathered following, and he says, Look, this is how we should pray. And he's actually not just saying, pray these specific words, although a lot of us know these words, right? This is maybe one of the more familiar prayers in the world. I grew up Catholic. I know this is, we called it the Our Father. You're Protestant, you called it the Lord's Prayer. It's just, everybody kind of knows it. And when you start hearing it, you're like, oh yeah, I can, I can trip right back into that rhythm and I can pray that. Jesus isn't giving us magic words as much as he's giving us the how and why behind the heart of prayer. People will often tell me, look, I, I don't know how you do what you do when they talk about preaching. And I don't know how I do what I do either. I'm not always sure I do it real well, but I, I know this. Preaching is so much easier than prayer. Even for me, I'm going, preaching is way easier. Getting up here and just, that's easy. But in the quiet of my prayer closet, in the quiet of, of my own thoughts, in the quiet of the silence of waiting to hear from God, sometimes that's hard. 
Like in my worst sermon, I never forgot what I was doing in the moment or started thinking about my grocery list. But all too frequently in prayer, we're, we just fall short. Prayer takes time to learn. It's a lot like marriage. You, you can do it immediately, like you're in it from the second you're in it, and yet you grow in it as well. When we do premarital counseling with people, uh, often what, what they're communicating to me as their counselor is that we got this. We're in love. This is easy. You should see how in love we are. Everything's going to be good. I don't know why you're trying to get us to fight. It's not going to happen. The spark, that romance, this physical attraction, this is going to last forever. And then anybody who's been married for more than 15 minutes goes, should we tell them now or should we tell them later? The joke is the best premarital counseling is to save up for some postmarital counseling. That's the best thing you can tell someone. In reality, what, what we're doing in premarital counseling is we're prepping people for really principled deep, difficult work. It isn't about, here's the rules. If you do this, this, and this, you'll always be happy. It's learn these principles and apply them because life is, is this ever-changing river. And so wherever you are, these principles, you overlay them, and that's kind of how it works. The same is kind of happening with Jesus here in prayer. Like, when you first pray, for most of us, our, our first legitimate prayer is, is often the most life-transforming prayer there is. This first time of belief when we pray, God, would you invade my life? I want to follow you. I believe. And that first prayer we send out changes not just our lives, but our eternity. It doesn't get more exciting. It doesn't get more fireworks in the sky than that. But we learn over time, it gets harder. Because the second prayer isn't as, as fireworks as the first. It isn't as life-transforming as the first because that one's over, so now what? And like any relationship, at times it gets stale because we, we just don't know where to go next. What am I doing? What's the principle I'm laying on? It's deep and difficult work, and what we learn really early is it's relational, not transactional. Prayer is relational, not transactional. The same thing is true in early romance. We feel so in love because... He makes me feel this way. She makes me feel this way. What, what we're saying, and don't realize it, is, is young love says, they make me feel this way. When I love them, they love me back, and it feels good, and that's a transaction. It is relational, but it's transactional at the same time. And when that feeling fades, what then? We realize that we're in relationship and that it's hard work, and it's great work if you can get it. And so Jesus says, let me teach you, which means more than just try harder. Jesus is saying, let me show you what this relationship is principally based on. And so these words, the Lord's Prayer, are, are really designed in many ways. They're designed to, to sort of help us consider God when we approach him. They become so familiar as to almost be invisible, though. We read this, and, and most of you could have closed your eyes and finished the prayer that Jesus taught his people. So, so what do we do when something becomes so familiar? Like, consider the sunrise. If you can see the sun, maybe consider summer, and then we'll think about the sunrise in summer. But consider the sunrise, the start of your day. Most common reaction to the sun peeking through the bedroom shades is, ugh. I just, if I could have five more minutes. There's a reason we invented this news button. We want five more minutes. And so the, the beginning of the day is usually met with, ugh. Okay, I can do this. 
and we start going down our list of what we're going to do and we have our things that we need to get done and we have maybe devotional time or prayer time or maybe we're just hungry, but, but that sun comes up and we go, ugh, another day. So we get out of bed, start getting ready for work or getting the kids ready for school. This sort of ugh leans over us, ugh. Because we don't stop and consider what it means to start another day. Like we take for granted that we get another day, but we don't actually consider what makes up a day. The reality of our existence on this planet, we never stop to think about. So stop and consider, the sun comes up over the horizon. The earth is orbiting around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. Right? Can we even fathom that? Well, then add to it that the earth is spinning at roughly 600 miles an hour at this latitude anyway. And so it's orbiting and spinning And here comes the sun on the horizon. Oh, the sun. Just that flaming ball of gas that's 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface that happens to be 846,000 miles in diameter. Just that thing. That if we were 15 degrees further this way or 15 degrees further this way, there'd be no life on this planet. But we happen to exist right in this exact spot, spinning at this exact speed, orbiting at this exact speed. And because of it, when the sun comes up over the horizon, you and I take a deep breath and we continue to live and breathe. And yet mostly what we do is we shrug. Oh, another day. I saw a quote online that said you are a ghost, a soul, driving a meat-covered skeleton made from stardust, riding a rock hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour. Why are we afraid of anything? Think about it. We don't stop and even consider our reality on earth. This is who we are. This is our everyday existence, and it is mind-blowing. But it's so familiar to us that it's, ugh, another day. Feels like a Monday. I grew up Catholic with nuns, altar boys, the whole thing. In first grade, I had an epic prayer battle with a little girl named Christy Lochte. We had gone to confession with the priest, which was a neat little show and dance that we did where we went in and had to make something up, because I'm not really going to tell him what I'm doing, right? So you tell the priest whatever you think he wants to hear, and then he releases you and he gives you penance, which is a certain number of prayers you need to say to make up for what you've done. So you go and you kneel in the church, and the little boy or girl next to you has to go into the room, and you're going, I don't know what they're going to say, but I hope it's worse than mine. And so you go and you sit down and you pray, and you, you spend, you pray until the whole class is done, basically. And this was a weekly thing. And in first grade, Sister Angela apparently didn't think the, the penance was enough for me, and so she came up to Christy and I, and little tiny, skinny, blonde-haired Christy Lochte and little tiny, skinny, blonde-haired me, and she goes, I want you each to do a hundred Our Fathers in her best Irish brogue. And I looked at her, and I was like, all right. And then I looked at Christy Lochte, and we met eyes, and I was like, I'll race you. <laughs> it was epic. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom of heaven will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven. Like, a hundred. And she's over there doing it even faster, and, you know, there's, like, smoke coming out of our, it's just, it was insane. But it's just burned in my head. I can do it. I can do it all day. It's in there. So much so that it's sometimes, it's meaningless. I knew what the words were, but I didn't know why they mattered or what it was teaching me. And so the, the point here is if you don't notice the sunrise anymore, or if you don't cherish the fact that Jesus died on a cross to open up a pathway between our hearts and God's, 
then what we can do today is lean into relationship again. And so Jesus teaches this way to pray. He says, pray then in this way. And I think we're going to find three things that we can uh, recognize. One is recognize my perspective. Jesus is uh, offering us to recognize our perspective, to remember our humility, and to be reconciled to our humanity. And so we're going to put those up on the screen. You'll be able to see them. Hopefully they stick. The first one, recognize my perspective. Recognize my perspective. Jesus says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. This is maybe the biggest point. It's the shortest point of the day, but it might be the biggest. The basis for prayer is there is a God who knows you. Like the Jews, he was an unspeakable name. You you shouldn't even say the name of God. And here we are saying the name of Jesus. What a powerful name. In that culture, you couldn't even say the name. It was so solemn and sacred. Orthodox Jews today, when they write God, it will be G-D. Because you can't even write the name. It's so sacred. His name was not spoken, and Jesus said, call him Dad. When you approach the Father, say, our Father, Dad. And this is just a mind-blowing paradigm shift in the day. For people who were not allowed to say the name to be invited to call him Father. It's a relational greeting. And it should stop us because often we approach God as some sort of cosmic vending machine, if we're honest. We put in the time, we put in the good works, we put in the holiness that we think we're supposed to put in, and out pops the treat. We reach our hand into the little God door and we get the blessing that we think we earned. Which sets us up for two issues. If we treat God as some sort of cosmic vending machine that we just go to when we need stuff, the two issues we get is, one, we think we got it because we earned it and we deserved it. That's the first kind of faulty path we go down. Well, I did a lot of good stuff, so God obviously blessed all the stuff I did. And as a result, I kind of earned all my good stuff. The second thing we walk down, which is also erroneous, and neither of these are like black and white. There's some gray in there. Does God bless you when you're faithful? Probably. But is it a one-to-one correlation? Not necessarily. The second thing is I, I don't get what I asked for. I put my money in. I put my, my blessing in and my good works in. And I put them all in that slot and then I hit B7. And you see the little coil turn and the, the little bag of blessing is about to fall and it sticks. Right? Everybody's been there. What do you do when the bag sticks in the vending machine? You start beating the vending machine, right? You shake the vending machine. You tip the vending machine. You, you always turn around to make sure no one's looking. Give it a real, you know, a forearm shiver and the thing shakes. It's not getting out. Then you have the decision of whether or not you're going to put in more blessings, right? Oh, gosh. I think I have a few more good works I did. And you put those back in the slot. Do I really want two bags? I didn't even really want the first. Okay. And so you buy it again. And then you get one and the next one's stuck. And the whole thing becomes this frustrating. And what you end up doing is you resent the vending machine because you didn't get what you paid for. And woe to us who treat God that way. That we put in our blessings and we didn't get what we, what we earned, what we paid for. God, this is a clear transaction I made with you. I, if you said if I'd love my neighbor, that I could get a new car. And loved my neighbor, what are you going to do? And there's the car and the vending machine. So what do we We start pushing the vending. We start wondering, what, I, don't, I don't like vending machines anymore. We've been invited into a personal conversation with an infinite creator God. The God who spins the earth, the God who rotates us around the sun, the God who breathes breath into us every day. We've been invited into a personal conversation. 
If we don't get this, then we don't need to pass this point. Don't pass go, right? Stop here, stop here. Think here, reconsider. Remember, recognize your perspective. We are children invited to approach the Father. Prayer is rooted in relationship. Second thing, remember my humility. Remember my humility. It says, hallowed be your name. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus begins the body of his prayer with praise. The exaltation of the name of God. Hallowed be your name. Which should indicate to us who prayer is ultimately about. Because my pride says it's about me, but humility, if we remember our humility, our humility would remind us, because Jesus said to pray this way, our humility says it's, it's about God. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Andrew Murray, in his book, Lord, Teach Us to Pray, said some people pray just to pray. Religious, obligation, whatever. And some people pray to really know God. And there's a huge difference there, right? If we're entering into relationship and into conversation, some people pray just to pray because we think we're supposed to. And some people pray with the expectation that in prayer they will know God better. To start with praise then, to start with this hallowed be your name type of uh, experience is to then build on a foundation of remembrance by recognizing the cost of the relationship. Like the, the day that we enter into prayer and don't recognize that it's an avenue opened up by Christ on the cross is the day we forget the whole point. That Jesus, in his death and resurrection, gave us access, paid our penalty, opened up the avenue, and said, now I am the bridge between you and the Father. We have to remember that, that it's primarily God uh, initiated, and then it is God, it's about God. If your prayers are primarily concerned with what you need and want, then there's a possibility that praying is not what you're actually doing. And that's hard. I've read that 15 times before I put it in paper. If your prayers are primarily concerned with what you need and want, there's a possibility that praying is not what you're actually doing. That's vending machine, God. That's Santa Claus, God. But that's not relationship. Our Father roots us in relationship, hallowed be, then tethers us to that relational reality. And it orients us to the idea that I am not God. Jesus died to open a line of communication should be uh, profoundly humbling to us. And this praise that we engage in to begin, this this sort of moment of praise, is often confused with gratitude. And so as we pray, we usually start with thank you, which is not wrong, but it isn't praise. Praise is about who you are. Gratitude is about what you've done. And so if my daughter comes up and says, you're an amazing dad, that's different than saying, thanks for buying me that thing. And both feel good on their own level, but one orients her to me in a whole other way than the other. Dad, your character, your generosity, or your faith, or your whatever, those things orient us as father and daughter. Those things, that's gratitude. That's about who I am, not what I do. The same is true with us and God. Thank you for stuff isn't praise. Hallowed be your name is to say, in our language, God, you are blank. The Eastern world, they don't use uh, these kind of abstract concepts like you. So when we say, God, you are, the answer is like love or peace. And those aren't wrong. Those are right. 
in the Eastern world, in Jesus' time, they would have said, God, you are rock. Immovable foundation. God, you are eagle. You soar. God, you are sun. Bright, and you brighten up my day. God, you are stars that give light even in the darkest season of my life. They would assign concrete things to God as a gratitude for just saying, God, you are incredible. Not thank you for the stars. God, you are. You are light. You are hope. You are joy. And so when we start with gratitude as Christ lays out here, when the exaltation, the hallowed be, our moment, when we pray, we can stop and say, before I thank you for what you've done, God, let me recognize who you are. Remembering this brings us back to a child on the lap of their parent. Reminds us that we are being heard by the creator of the universe. More humility. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, with his eschatological, right, in times, and it's temporal, it's right now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is to say, Lord, bring your reign, bring your kingdom. Lead me in my world, largely, and in my life, really hyper-specifically. What would it look like to pray for his will to be done everywhere, but then in our lives, too? It's kind of the hard one. We're afraid to declare ourselves full-on followers of Jesus or pray for his kingdom to be done through us because, if we're honest, sometimes that would really mess with our lifestyle. Like, God, if, if, you, if I really laid down my will and, and picked up yours for my life, that might really force me to make some uncomfortable decisions. So can I not gossip anymore? Is that what you're saying? Can I not? Is materialism no longer something I can chase? Is, is vanity something you're going to show me and I'm going to have to like work on myself? To say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in the macro sense, feels pretty easy sometimes. God, I'd love for justice to be more prevalent here. But when we personalize it as we're speaking to the Father in relationship, what we're, what we're asking is, God, would you wreck me if you had to? Father, I so want to be aligned with who you desire for me to be. I so want to be aligned with your love and with your joy and with your justice. I want to be a vessel of that. And so if I'm not, would you wreck me? We worry that sometimes prayer is, is even incongruent with our lives. So we don't pray because we feel like we haven't earned the right to pray. I can't pray for that because I'm not living that. Andrew Murray again says, is the prayer of my lips really the prayer of my life? As Terrence talks about conversational prayer, I think that's a big question. Because there are moments where we pray with our lips, but, but in reality, in our whole life is a prayer lived out. My will be done versus your will be done. The reality for most of us is if when our prayer life is concerned with our will, the fruitfulness of our prayers usually die on the vine. Because God's will triumphs. It's hard. Your will be done is a hard thing to pray in general. It's a really hard thing to pray in acute moments of crisis in life. Because we have to ask ourselves the question, do we really want that? Like, God, do I really want your will? And God's not offended when we ask for ours. Hey, God, I don't know what your will is, but this is what I'd love to see happen. There's no sin in that. But when we are attempting to bend his will, we get into fuzzy territory. I've spoken about my sister before, who, when she was 11, I was 18, she became pretty critically ill, lung 
disease overtook her. There was no diagnosis. There was no real cure. She went through multiple lung transplants, kidney transplant. She was just hanging on day to day. And it was a 13-year battle from her diagnosis until her death. And I can look back at that journey. And her first lung transplant was a living donor. And so I gave my left lung. My dad gave his right lung. They open us up. They take it out. They put it in her. They close her up. And that lasted 10 years. But I remember before I agreed to do it, I was bargaining with God. My faith was about an inch deep. Um, But an inch deep of water is still wet, so it's still faith. And I would say, God, if I do this, I want you to promise to at least let her to live until 19, the age I was when we had this first surgery. Like, will you just give her that? I just want her to be able to live as long as I've lived. And if you have to kill me to do it, that's fine. But just, that's what I want for her. I was placing my will upon him. And in the first four, five, six years of her illness, all of my prayers were my will. And I don't remember when it shifted, but I remember in the last couple of years, I felt a whole lot more comfortable praying for his will. It it finally occurred to me as we uh, left her memorial service that maybe the only way that he could heal her was to take her home. That healing wasn't going to be on this place, that healing ultimately for her was never going to be in another transplant or another procedure or another diagnosis. Healing for her was home. But after praying for his will, for those last couple of years, that felt right. That actually felt like answer and not heal her, heal her, heal her, and no answer. It was an answer. I did. She's with me now. But it took me almost a decade of praying my will before it finally clicked that maybe he knows what he's doing. Humility forces us to reckon with whether we aim to use God or serve God. Do I want my will or his will? Tim Keller says, you know this by your prayers. He says, I'll tell you, as a quote, I'll tell you what a user is. A user comes into religion like this. A user says, look, I have my goals. I want to be happy. I want to be comfortable. I want to be successful. And so a user comes to God and says, okay, what do I have to do? Tell me. Do I have to come to church? Okay. Do I have to clean up my life? Okay. Do I have to pray? Okay. How much and how often? Keller says, it's like a union negotiation with God. You say, look, I have things I want to get done, and I'll do what you want, God, so just let me know what I need to do. That's using God. The difference between using and serving is not evangelism or works or missions. All those things can be done to look good to other people, too. He says, prayer is the truest place of maturity, and it's the truest indicator of whether we think God works for us or whether we're really about his kingdom and his will. So that question is, do you use God or serve God? Remember humility. Third and finally, be reconciled to our humanity. Jesus is inviting us to be reconciled to our humanity. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This daily bread. Daily bread is such a like sweet pastoral image of providing. When we think about bread in our culture... We think about our monthly bread or our annual bread, or is that my 401k bread? Like, what bread are you going to provide? Because that's how our culture runs. It says daily, enough for today, which is a return to childlike faith. Think about it this way: kids never ask what's for dinner next Tuesday. They just don't. They don't care. 
They're not thinking about that. They say, Mom, what's for dinner tonight? Why? Because childlike faith in a parent is going, I assume we're going to eat today. What is that going to be? They're not worried about Tuesday's dinner or your emergency savings plan. They're not worried about October's mortgage or whether you have health care debt. They're not worried. Kids think about today. Daily bread isn't about provision as much as it's about trust. Because Matthew 6, if you keep reading, if we keep reading in this chapter, he goes on to talk about worry really quickly. Don't worry. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. So, so just be about today. It isn't about provision. Are you going to have bread today and then tomorrow and next week and six months from now? It's about trust. Do you trust me that you're going to have bread today and tomorrow and next week and six months from now? This is the reconciliation to our humanity. This takes us back to the sunrise. We don't control the orbit of the earth, much less whether we're eating next week or breathing in five minutes. Jesus is saying, I want you to see and be reconciled to the fact that you are absolutely dependent on God for everything. Everything. This is hard for us because we so structure our lives to be in control. And to pray this way is to say, open recognition, God, I am not in control. And my humanity compared to your divinity shows me that I'm a speck. You are not in charge. Your existence Every day and every minute, God says, is relying on me, not just in the big things, but even in your most basic needs, in your bread. That's for me. Until you're reconciled to the fact that you are a dependent creature and not God, then prayer is going to feel somehow unsatisfactory. Prayer reconciles us to our humanity, it puts us in our place, and it reminds us just how helpless we are, just how much we're reliant on Jesus. And this is beautiful. This shouldn't be like this depressing thing, like, man, prayer really makes me feel small. I thought I was cool, and then prayer came and told me I wasn't anything, and I couldn't do anything right, and I wasn't, you know, I'm not in control, I can't do anything. It puts me in my place. When we say, you get put in your place, what is that? It's usually humiliation, which is the same root as being humbled. Maybe some of us need to be put in our place, I don't know. This should be exciting. This should be freeing, that when we pray, And I don't have to wake up every morning and start spinning the earth to make sure we all survive another day. I wake up and oxygen fills my lungs and I have another day to go and breathe and live. This is hard for us culturally. We can't um, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just make stuff happen in God's kingdom the way we can in our world. That God opens the door, that God makes the way, that God lays the path, that God directs our steps. So even when we do great things, we look back and we go, man, God did that. And I was just lucky enough to get to walk through it. The most successful people, followers of Christ, that have just done incredible things and they got missions all over the world. And you look and you're like, man, isn't that guy incredible? And when that guy remembers his humility, that girl remembers her humility, she goes, isn't God incredible? And I just kept taking the next step that he led me to take. And in doing so, look what he's done. From bread to forgiveness, we all recognize we can't make it right. We don't earn our forgiveness. No amount of good works undoes the chasm of sin. Even more, Jesus says, pray this way, lead me not into temptation. I can't even seem to walk in the right direction. I can't even seem to avoid the sinkhole in the road of my life. I just walk right into it. God, I need you to help me avoid the traps. 
guide my steps. So he says, when you pray, pray in this way. And he lays out these words, words that are familiar, and that maybe for some of us, we should remember and start praying again. Maybe not quite as fast as I did at six years old, maybe a little slower. But to consider, God, what are you asking me to do in praying that way? God, what are you reorienting my heart to pray that way? That we might recognize our perspective, that we are children in the Father's presence. We would remember our humility, which is the purpose is to know God and then know his will so we can serve him. And then be reconciled to our humanity, which is this deep, abiding trusting that says, you are God and I am not. And so lead me in the right direction. Over the course of the next month, we're going to... uh, work through some of these ideas. What does conversational prayer look like? What does it look like to deal with unanswered prayer? How do we learn to pray shamelessly? How do we pray together? The idea and the hope is that we would grow as a people of prayer, a praying people. So I don't know exactly how you're going to apply this week. I really like to have really clean, easy applications for you, things to do. And after all we've said today, maybe it isn't what you do, it's how you relate. Maybe you go, hey, I need a way to relate better or more often. I forget. I'll go two, three days, weeks, months without praying. So some people in here are going to make a choice to set an hourly alarm. You're going to go, I'm going to set my phone and my watch. Every 60 minutes, it's just going to beep at me, and that's going to be my, my ping. Stop and remember and pray. Not set aside 15 minutes, and if you're in the middle of a meeting and there's someone's giving a presentation on PowerPoint, you just go, hold on, let me pray real fast, everybody, you know. It's within you. Pray. God, you are God and I am not, and I trust you with the next hour of my life. And start to develop that dependence. So some of us may be setting a timer and just saying, I'm going to just be more prayerful. Maybe you say the Lord's Prayer in the morning every day as a reorientation. Maybe that's what you take from this. Maybe you find your own rhythm. You go, you know what, this is true. I want to be a more prayerful person. So maybe my prayer this this week is God help me figure out how to do that, that I might know you better. Ultimately, it's a journey we're on, and uh, like we started with the marriage analogy, it's a growing relationship that sometimes has peaks and valleys. Sometimes we get more comfortable, less comfortable. Um, but if we'll hang in there, and keep going in every day, and opening ourselves up to God, He is faithful. He has proven faithful to us already. So let's be a people that would be willing to pray, a people that would be willing to approach his throne as children and say, God, show us the way that we might walk in it. Let's start now. Let's pray. Father, you are unmatched. You allow us access. You allow us to know you. You allow us to relate to you. something we we didn't earn and have no right to father you are unchanging god you are foundational lord you are the basis of our lives so father we want to rest in your presence learn to be better listeners in prayer not just talkers Father, we pray 
that you would help us know you. You would eliminate the distractions. You would guide us in the steps to being your children again on your lap. Father, we might remember what it means to look into your eyes, to trust you deeply, to walk with you on this journey. God, we thank you for sending Jesus, for making a way through his sacrifice. Father, may our lives be about your kingdom. May our lives be about your will. So show us that will. Father, show us today. That we might trust you with today. And when we get to tomorrow, we'll do it all over again. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.